0: Let us return then to our text this evening, this morning. We have been reading through Philippians and we've come to the section that we have previously read. And I want to highlight one verse, Uh, that is verse 27, verse 27 of Philippians chapter one then will be our text for this morning. And we look to the Lord to follow with his blessing and to help preacher and hearer to truly benefit from our time around the word. Philippians chapter one, verse 27 then, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We want to meditate upon these words profitably. Today, You may well wonder, and indeed it would not be wrong to wonder, why did we read Job chapter 13? Has this got any relationship to the passage that we're studying here? Well, there is. It may not be that obvious, and I'm not claiming to be particularly bright about the matter but someone or some author pointed it out to me, and I can see the connection. Job was under trial. Job didn't know what we know about the book of Job. Terrible things had happened to Job, and he didn't know anything about the reasons behind it. We do, of course, but he didn't. But he was under a trial and so was the Apostle Paul here he was under a trial and as we shall see he was confident that he would come out of that trial well it was exactly the same for Job he was confident let me read one or two verses that we read earlier Job 13 at verse 13 hold your peace let me alone that I may speak and let me come on what will. Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in mine hand? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him." And Job was confident. Job wasn't saying for one moment that he was sinless. No, don't think that. But he knew that he was not living in open and flagrant sin, that he was living a righteous life as far as one can live a righteous life. And therefore he recognized that what is ever happening, he will believe, he will indeed trust in him though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Well, that's exactly the kind of mentality that caused the apostle Paul in prison to joyfully take whatever came his way in the providence of God, because he knew ultimately that he was God's, that God had his finger on him, his hand on him, his life was hid in Christ, in him. And therefore... He didn't fear what was going to come, and he had confidence that he would actually come out of this trial, and that he did believe also that he would have an opportunity to come and pay a return visit to the Philippians. He was confident that he would be set free, but even in that confidence, he had a desire to depart and to be with Christ. What a tremendous desire. Verse 23 For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. What wonderful assurance he had. He was prepared to meet the King of Terrors, as we find, the King of Terrors, death itself. He was prepared to meet that because he knew that he had an interest and a portion and a part in Christ Jesus, the Lord. And what did Christ do? Or what did he do? Yes, he conquered death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And therefore he knew whatever was going to happen to be with Christ was far better. But he believes it will be more profitable for the Philippians that he might remain Nevertheless, verse 24, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He would like to depart, but he believed the Philippians would benefit from his counsel, from his wisdom, from his exhortations, from his presence, and therefore he knew that he would come out of this trial, and he hopes to see them again. Verse 26, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again." by coming to you again. Well, we want then to get into the meat of our text, because he goes on in our text. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. He did believe that he would not die, he would not be put to death during this trial, that he would be set free but he wasn't certain that he would be able to return to the Philippians. He wasn't. But having outlined his experience and his take on events, he then turns the table and he basically says to the Philippians, never mind what happens to me. I'll come to you if I can, but I may not be able to come to you. I'm not in control of these things. I don't know what's going to be the ultimate outcome. Yes, I will be delivered. I will not die. But that does not mean to say that I will be able to come and visit you. Nevertheless, whether I come or not, there's something that you must do, something that you must undertake. He goes on to say, only This is the important thing. He's now turning the tables and he's speaking direct to them about their behavior. How are they going to conduct themselves? He has told them how he's going to conduct himself. Come what may, he's going to face all of these things. But nevertheless, there is some things that you must do. Only let your conversation. Conversation here is, not the same as conversation with us today. It's not about talk. It's about walk. It's about your behavior. That's what he's talking about. And he is basically saying here that you are to live like a heavenly citizen. Now this would be uh, something that would strike a chord with the Philippians. In Philippi, which was a Roman colony, they were under Roman jurisdiction. Philippi was in Greece, but it was a Roman colony and they were under Roman jurisdiction and they had all the blessings and the benefits of Roman citizenship. Well, what he's saying to them is, because they were inclined to be proud of their Roman citizenship, because there were many advantages in being a Roman citizen, but what he's trying to tell them that they might grasp, you are citizens of heaven. Don't gloat in the fact that you are Roman citizens, good as that may be. Christian. You are to look up. You are not so much to live as a Roman citizen, but you are to live as a citizen of heaven. In other words, you are to comprehend and understand and delight in the blessings that belong to you because of your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, We want to draw one or two lessons then from this text. The Christian Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. Or put it another way, the Christian who's on his way to glory, he's not on a cruise ship. He's on a battleship. This is what he wants to impress upon them. We have been going through this chapter here. In the first section, we noticed that as a child of God, they have fellowship in the gospel. In the section we looked at last Lord's day, which spoke to us about the difficulties that we encounter and how these difficulties further the cause of the gospel. This is how Paul looked upon his difficulties. And therefore, they were, along with him, they were servants in the furtherance of the gospel. Now in this section here, and we find it in our text, he is reminding them that they are soldiers, and they are sent, and they are part of God's army to defend the Christian gospel. What does it say, for instance, our text? That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He is reminding them, therefore, in this last section that we're looking at, it's running through it, that they are soldiers, that they are warriors, that they are in a a spiritual battle. And it would be nice if the apostle Paul was there to comfort them and to exhort them, but it may well be that he's not going to be there. And whether he's there or not, only let your lifestyle, only let the things that you undertake be as it becometh, the gospel of Christ. Well. One or two things we want to highlight. First of all, the believer must be a worthy citizen. The believer must be a worthy citizen. We are not worthy in of ourselves. We don't become citizens. We don't become Christians because we're worthy. We cannot earn our way to heaven. That's impossible. The Bible makes it clear, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not by works so that no man may boast. Friend, Christian, if you're in the kingdom of God, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because the grace of God has touched your heart. It is because your eyes have been opened. It is because you have seen your sin, you've seen the misery of it to some extent, or you don't fully understand these things. We never will, maybe until eternity, but you've had an understanding. You've seen your sin. You've seen yourself on that road to a lost eternity. You were on the broad road that leads to destruction, and then wonderfully, wonderfully, your sin was exposed, but so was the Savior revealed to you. That's what happened to you, Christian. Your experience is different from mine experience, but we all experience that same thing. We come to an understanding of our sin in some manner and some measure, and we begin to see something of the glory and of the wisdom and of the beauty and the suitableness of the Savior that God himself has provided for mankind in order that we might be reconciled to him. Oh, you might not have understood the plan of redemption. It might indeed in later times, it might have come to your attention that God had foreordained whatsoever come to pass. And you find this staggering. A God who has foreordained whatsoever came to pass. A God who has foreordained the day you were conceived in the womb, a God who has foreordained the day when you come out of the womb, and a God who has foreordained when you closed in with Christ. All of these things are, are known unto God. He's the one who has decreed all of these things. Now, you didn't know all these things, but you knew you were unworthy. You were, in some sense, cut to your heart. You were stripped of your self-righteousness. You looked upon yourself and you saw you're a hell-deserving, guilty sinner. And you marveled to some extent that God had provided a savior, one who did what you could never do. He satisfied God's law. Paid the penalty for that law that you broke. And those friends, oh, it's a horrible thing to think on. Oh, but it is positive. Those in hell, friends, can never satisfy God's justice. Never. Never. They can never make atonement. Do we not see how holy God is? Do we not see the terribleness of sinning against God? And the more that we would see this, all oh, the more that we would love the Lord Jesus Christ and we would delight in Him. Well, friends, this is what he's saying to the Philippians here, you belong to Jesus. Once you belong to the devil, you served the flesh, the devil, this world, but Jesus Christ came into your life and you were transformed. You were taken out of the the dunghill and you were put upon a rock. What is that rock? That rock is Jesus Christ. Now, I have outlined some of these blessings, but as you know, with blessings comes responsibilities. You can't live as you once lived as as an unbeliever, as a non-Christian. You can't live like that any longer. You are to be done with that old lifestyle. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. If you were to marry into the royal family, hypothetically, of course, but if you were to marry into the royal family, your life would change, would it not? Of course it would, it would change. Well, if you are adopted into the family of the living God, you better believe your life must change and your behavior must change. And Paul says this here, and he says it consistently through his letters. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Oh, that's interesting to remember there. He was uh, Caesar's prisoner. No, he was not. When he was in prison, humanly speaking, it may well have been Caesar, but he recognized he was a prisoner of the Lord. He was there because of the Lord. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That's what he's saying here. No different. Christian, you've got to live up to your responsibilities. You've got to put away your foul tongue, your bad behavior. You've got to put all of these things behind you. You have to crucify your pride. Do away with your self-righteousness. You are to be filled with humility. It is to be an amazing thing to you that God has extended mercy to you. And you are to forgive one another. Hasn't God forgiven your sins in Christ? Your sins that you could never calculate. Has he not forgiven them all? And are you going to bear a grudge against a fellow Christian? Away with that nonsense, he says. That you walk worthy. That you walk worthy. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There are other texts I could quote, friends, but that's surely sufficient. Oh, let us take a look at ourselves then. Let us examine our lives. Let us get the microscope open. Let us not look at others. Let us look at ourselves. Does your conversation in the sense of what we speak about? Does your conversation reveal to people that you are a Christian? Do we speak the language of Zion? Or are we worldly in our speech? You have to ask, you have to answer these questions yourself. And let us be reminded, as they were to be reminded, that whatever blessings and whatever privileges they had as Roman citizens, well that will come to an end but when you're a Christian your heavenly citizenship will never come to an end never and we are being prepared for heaven God could easily the moment that we were converted, transport us into heaven. But he has chosen not to do that. He has chosen us to remain in this world and he, through his word and spirit, is sanctifying the people of God, preparing them for heaven. And therefore, we are to crucify the old life. The old man. And the more that we do that, friends, the more that we will be occupied. And we will not be looking at others. We will be so busy looking into ourselves and seeing so many things that are wrong and need to be changed. Secondly, The believer must represent the gospel. Well, I've kind of highlighted that in the, my introduction. But even in this chapter here, which we didn't read all of it today, but we have on other occasions, the gospel is mentioned six times in this chapter. We have the fellowship with the gospel in verse five, reminding us that Christians we have this common theme running through our lives. It is the gospel and all that the gospel brings to our attention. This is something that unites Christians. It doesn't matter the the color of our skin. It doesn't matter the language that we speak or where we come from in this world. Friends, if we are Christians, we are united by what Jesus Christ has done in the gospel, and we can have fellowship. With all Christians, because the gospel unites us. In verse 7, we have in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, Paul recognized that what he was doing was all part of seeking to defend and confirm the gospel, because the Jews were out to tell us that, or to tell the Roman authorities that. The gospel is something that's against governments and against things, but no, Paul was going to defend and confirm the truth of the gospel. In verse 12, which we had a look at last week, we have the furtherance of the gospel, how Paul, even with his difficulties, would be there to realized that no matter what difficulties came upon him, ultimately the gospel indeed would go on. It would not be fettered. It could not be stopped, the furtherance of the gospel. And verse 17, again, the defense of the gospel. But our own text here that we're looking at, we are told, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, with one mind striving together, for the faith of the gospel. And therefore, we represent the gospel. We represent it. As I have said to you on other occasions, the people out there in the world who never come to the house of God, never read the word of God, they are largely ignorant of the gospel. They couldn't tell you what the gospel's about. They don't know it, but they know you go to a church, they know you attend a Christian place of worship, and what they know about the gospel is seen in you. You are the gospel to them. I am the gospel to my neighbors. As far as I can see, None of them go to a place of worship. And when they see me, they see something of the gospel, I hope. Or they associate the gospel with my lifestyle, with my conversation, and so it is with you. And therefore, we're all witnesses. Some may witness audibly and indeed it's something that we should stimulate and seek to encourage but we're all witnesses some might be silent witnesses where they witness by their lifestyle by their demeanor by their clothing by their lifestyle what they spend their money on and What occupies their time? All of these things contribute to the believer representing the gospel. What do they see in your life? What do they see in my life? Do they simply see as going to a, a place of worship? Is that all? Or do they see the authentic gospel? Do they see a life that has been transformed? Oh, it's a serious matter But the believer does represent the gospel in our day and generation when multitudes will not hear a sermon. They will look upon you as the gospel, as representing the gospel. Notice also thirdly, the believer must be a devoted citizen. He he must be a devoted citizen. That whether I come uh, and see you or else be absent. There are many Christians who are Christians when it's favorable. But when circumstances don't go their way, when things don't happen as they would like, Well, their testimony is not what it should be. Some people are Christians when they come to the house of God, and then what happens when they leave, when they leave their Christian brethren behind, when they go into their own homes and whatever they do, they're not the same. There might be pious people in the house of God. Or there might be pious people when they meet with other Christians, but when they're out in the world, somehow things change. Well, the Philippians were exhorted here that whether the Apostle Paul was with them or not, these are the things that they are to undertake, and their lives are to be shown to be Christians, not just when the Apostle Paul was in their presence. I'm going to quote from Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. And it's in reference to the behavior of slaves. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Now the context there is that the Christian slave is to serve his master diligently, whether the master is there or not. And he's not to be like some slaves who, when the master's there, then the slave is busy and diligent. But when the master's away, well, the slave is not so diligent, he does his own thing and he doesn't care. Well, the principle's the same for the Christian. You're a Christian, 24 hours of the day, seven days of the week, 365 days of the year. It doesn't matter who's looking upon you. Christ is looking upon you. The triune God sees you. He sees what you do in your home. He sees what you do in the darkness of night. He sees all these things. And what's more, he hears your words and he knows your thoughts. Oh friends, is this not something that will cause us to examine ourselves? and we are to be devoted citizens. And we are to realize that we are ambassadors for Christ continually, not just when it's obvious, but when we're away from the limelight, when there's no one watching, God is watching. Are you a devoted citizen then? Are you a devoted? dedicated Christian this is what he was saying to them or else be absent I may hear of your affairs he knew he wasn't going to die but he may well not be able to visit them but he would hear and therefore he was going to be alive and he would hear and what, a, what an encouragement it would be to the Apostle Paul if he was going through some difficulties and, and word came to him and told him, you see these people in Philippi, you see that church that you formed there in Philippi, well, they are going on in the gospel. They haven't fallen behind. They haven't become lukewarm, no, they're still as devoted to Christ as they once were. Can you imagine? How the apostle Paul would feel then. Maybe he might be imprisoned somewhere else. Maybe he might be somewhat despondent. And he gets this message, a wonderful, comforting message from a messenger. These Philippians are going on. These Philippians are taking up their cross daily. These Philippians are fighting the good fight of faith. Would this not encourage the apostle Paul? Of course it would. Let us therefore be devoted. Let us not put on a show. Let us be sincere. Let us seek to follow Christ day after day. Come what may. Fourthly, and we'll close here fourthly. The believer must stand that you stand fast, any believers do stand. But the picture here before us friends is not standing individually. It's not standing alone. It's standing in unity. It's being together. We know there will be exceptions, but exceptions don't prove the rule. The generality is true that Christians are stronger and fitter and better Christians when they are united, when they are one. Maybe the apostle Paul, when he's writing this, that ye stand fast in one spirit, maybe he had in mind warfare. and they would be familiar of a military term called the flanax, the flanax, something that the the Greeks used in their warfare. What was that? What was the flanax? Well, it was a group of soldiers, and they would come together as they were facing the enemy. They would have their spears, and they would have their shields, and they would come together tightly packed together. the shields would be in front of them and other shields would be above them so that when the arrows from the enemy came, they would land upon the shields and these soldiers would be tightly packed together and they would move forward like like a modern day tank, they would move forward slowly and they would go to the enemy. And as the arrows fell upon them, what would happen? The arrows would fall upon their shields and they themselves would be safe. And then they would go at the enemy, but they, they were united. They went forward step by step in this closely packed group to protect one another. There wasn't a soldier out here, but a soldier out there they knew that their strength relied in unity and going forward one by one, one step after another together. That's what he's impressing here upon the Philippian Christians, that they would be united. Friends, we are Christians. If we're Christians, we need each other. We don't prosper in isolation. Oh, it may well be because of certain certain circumstances, it may well be that there's a Christian who has to live a life of isolation, but that's not normal. That's not, you could think maybe of Arthur Pink. He was an exception, not to be followed. Imagine being in Stornoway and not attending the, uh, the ministry of Macrae, Kenneth Macrae. We would find that incredible But that happened. That's not normal. And we're not to cultivate that. We are individuals who need one another. And when we absent ourselves from the fellowship, when we're not found here when we're not rubbing shoulders one with another, it is to the weakening of the individual and indeed to the congregation. Because we are to stand fast in one spirit. We are to be together in unity as we fight the cause of Christ in our day and generation. I didn't give you the title, standing fast in Christ. That's what's required of us. That's what was going to be required of them, whether Paul came or not. They were to stand fast in Christ. And so it is for the Christian today, the Christian in party, the Christian anywhere, standing fast in Christ. Amen.